0: Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the the troublemakers, the round pegs in square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward, and while some may see them as crazy ones, we see genius, because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. Many of you know that comes from a very famous speech at Stanford University from the late Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers, Pixar Animation, and many other crazy things. But note how he viewed change. Change involved, as he put, crazy people, misfits, rebels. And those people were to expect, in the change that they bring about, pain. They were to be vilified, Disagreement would would definitely come their way. And often we don't like change because we expect that when when change happens. It disrupts those that we know, but it also disrupts us. It disrupts our routines, our comfort zones. But as we look through our passage today, I think you will see the requirement is change and change and even more change. Why? Why? Let's think back to what we've been looking at in Matthew's Gospel, if we can, over these last few weeks. Now, Jesus has announced himself as the king of God's good, heavenly, eternal kingdom. He has taught that with authority. That's chapters 5 to 7, commonly known as Sermon on the Mount. He has demonstrated that authority through miraculous signs in chapters 8 and 9. That is the backdrop to where we've got to in chapter 10. And as we enter this chapter, verse 1... The disciples were being readied, weren't they, by Jesus to be sent out as apostles. That literally means sent once. And they were to be given the same authority that Jesus had demonstrated and taught to then go out to proclaim and to demonstrate the authority of the King of God's eternal heavenly kingdom. Now Jesus is about to send them out, if you see in verse 5. But what follows in, in the rest of the chapter if you like, he doesn't send them out. It becomes a kind of—it's a teaching section of—it's a discourse in Matthew's gospel. It's a teaching section. He's, and he's really giving the disciples and us as the readers a reality check. It's like the disciples' guide for the life of proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. What it's going to look like. Change is coming. And so Jesus instructs, he warns, he brings some if you like gritty reality to the future life of these disciples. It is the loving thing to do, isn't it? And I guess we would be wise to listen to Jesus' words and pray that his spirit works through these words. I don't know, if it, has anyone been watching The Voice recently? It finished last night. Perhaps just, Lyle's admitted it, well done, good work. that's good, well done. <laughs> Or you know, maybe you're a Britain's Got Talent fan. You know uh, I, I hadn't been much a fan. I've been kind of dragged through it a little bit. But it finished last <laughs> night. Some girl won. It was on the news today, wasn't it? You know, she'd won and apparently she got a bit of a sympathy vote and, uh, and so on. I wonder if anyone today will be lovingly warning and telling her of the future reality of her life, as Jesus was with the disciples here. I wonder if anyone would so, be so loving to do that. Apparently it was in the news today that the winner of last year's The Voice. We don't even remember his name. Do you? Or her name? Her name. See, is i even got the wrong gender there. <coughs> Apparently it's sold under a thousand albums, and that's like under a thousand pounds in your pocket. That's not a good year's wage, I don't think. You know, they are completely forgotten. It's a very tough world in the arts, isn't it? But here we have Jesus. He he's lovingly Warning his disciples of what is to come in the time ahead. And and look, he says in chapter 10, verse 16, he says, it's going to be difficult. I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. It's going to be like that. It's going to be really hard, even dangerous, as you proclaim the good news. And if you think you're exempt, if you think, oh, I can be a true disciple of Jesus Christ and not feel that kind of uh, heat, then look at verse 24. A student is not above his master. I think the principle there, if you turn it the other way around, is if you can't feel the heat in your life for proclaiming, you know, or for making Christ known, then you have to ask yourself the question, are you doing as Jesus instructs? Are you being the true disciple of Christ? See, Jesus shows throughout this chapter that there's, there's got to be change. Changing what they do. Changing how people respond to them. Uh, they're to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now from the rooftops, he says. And as they do, they've got to expect some grief from that. Uh, as we finished our, uh, uh, looking at this two weeks ago, we get to the end, verse 20, 32 and verse 33. And it's kind of a little summary verse there. There's comfort, but there's also acknowledgement. Look at it. Whoever acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Comfort, yes. But also warning. Why, though? I think because we all have a tendency, don't we, to disown Jesus in areas of our lives. Oh, you might say, you know... I. You know, I know what the Bible tells me about this area of my, you know, relationships. But I've met this girl, she's, she's fantastic. I know she's not a Christian, I know what the Bible says about that, but she, we're great together. All my friends at work, they, they say we even look great together. You know, we, we, we share so many things together and, and everything seems so wonderful at the moment. I'm sure that as we go out and as we, as we date that, yeah, she'll see Christ in me and she'll be persuaded to follow Jesus, just like I do right now. They're good intentions, aren't they? But they are intentions that are actively deciding to disown Jesus. See, verse 32 and verse 33 warn of what persistence in that kind of thinking will bring. So they are a huge comfort to followers of Jesus Christ who in their struggles to make Jesus known, uh, they know that the grief and the persecution that they're gonna, that's gonna come on them. They know the painful changes in their lives. But of your own choosing, these verses could also be a very sobering warning. But what did you expect as a follower of Jesus Christ? Did you expect a kind of change without any, any kind of pain and sacrifice? Did you be, expect to be above your master in that way? Well, in these last verses of this chapter, Jesus brings the reality of change, I guess, to the place where it hurts the most to our relationships, and specifically to our family relationships. There are all sorts of reasons, aren't there, why families you know, can be dysfunctional and not get on and so on. And in my notes, it kind of says, insert mother-in-law joke here. But it's too easy, isn't it? And it's too painful. And too true for some. But do you see how Matthew leads us to this point? You know, he he said there's an appointed time coming. Even the demon-possessed men, back in chapter 8, verse 29, they knew that this time was coming when Jesus was going to fully and finally come as the judge of all. Now Jesus has sent his disciples, he's going to send them into the harvest fields. There's plenty of work to be done because the king longs for people to acknowledge who he is, to turn to him before he comes at that final time, that appointed time to judge. It's a time for for making him known, but the reality strikes for the one who dares, that misfit, the one who's willing to try and acknowledge Jesus. The reality is that they will suffer, and as we saw two weeks ago, they may even face a ruined reputation in this world, but these are big changes, aren't they? But perhaps the most difficult change that the disciple of Christ will face, face is this last one. We see a change in relationships. Our first point on your sheets there, a change in relationships. Look at verse 34. Let me refresh your minds of that if again, again, if I possibly can. 34 to verse 36. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mo- her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies, will be, ma- will be the members of his own household. I have a friend who um, grew up in a conservative Jewish home, um, not in this country. He came to London to study initially, and then uh, remained in London working for a very large firm. Whilst he was a student, he, mes- he met some, well, they're quite strange folk, they called themselves Christians. They loved him. They shared their lives with him. And they welcomed him into London and into everything that they did. And eventually um, he began to ask them questions. And realised that the, the thing that defined them was, was not their work or you know, their friends. But it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And they got the opportunity to share with my friend the gospel. And he was utterly blown away by Jesus. And he asked Jesus to forgive him. And he trusted in what Jesus had done in his life, the perfect life that he could never have lived. He trusted in Jesus' sacrificial death for him on the cross, taking the burden of the punishment that he deserved for his sin on himself. And he trusted in Jesus' resurrected life, historically verified. That is, he trusted in the gospel. It was an absolute radical change in his life, And my friend, he was excited by this. He said, yeah, I've I've become a Christian. He he rang home. And his parents on the other end of the phone were utterly disgusted. They sent family members over to London, actually, to try and dissuade him of this madness as they saw. Uh, One time, he was back home, and uh, they, they actually tried to steal his passport so he couldn't come back to London to mingle with these Christians ever again. Eventually, this is what they did. And this is common practice within conservative Jewish circles. They disowned their son and they they actually had a funeral for him. Because that's the way that they would consider him from this point on, as dead. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth, Jesus says. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, division. And why do you think that is the case? Well, you see, the reason for the change in relationships because even those who love you so much, mum, dad, family members, really close friends, if they do not share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will hate that gospel even more than they love you. It will overwhelm their affections. It doesn't sound much like the promise of the Messiah that you read about. And we have read it at Christmas time, do you? I mean, just let me recall to you, Isaiah 9, it says this. We say at Christmas carol service, is this the Jesus we expected? Yeah, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government or authority will be on his shoulders and he will be called, listen to this, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father. And here's the one, Prince of Peace. And then you get to, uh, thinking Christmas story again, the heavenly hosts, they address the shepherds, don't they, on the hillside overlooking Bethlehem, you know, on on that first Christmas night. Uh, And what do they say about the promised Messiah that was being born? They say this, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Has Jesus just got it wrong here? Because we get to Matthew 10 and we We're not seeing much peace, are we? Well, you see, the peace that Jesus brings, foretold in Isaiah and in the angels, is a heavenly, eternal peace with God that is offered in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It begins today, but it's a peace that is between you and I. If we've trusted in Jesus and our heavenly Father, those of us who acknowledge the Son, we get this heavenly eternal peace. That reality results in a change for our relationships, though. For even those who who love us so much in this world, they will hate that eternal peace that we have with God and, and they'll ruin any relative peace that you once knew with them. Now, that isn't always the case. But Jesus warns us here lovingly That if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you acknowledge Jesus as your Saviour and Lord, then you should expect a change in your relationships. But also, we see, um, and secondly, a change in our priorities. I want you to think, just a moment, I'm just going to read out verse 37 through to verse 39. And as I do, try and work out how you think verse 34 to 36 kind of goes together with this next bit, okay? Let's see how it goes. Verse 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now I think what's happening here is that those previous verses are kind of explained by Verse 37 to 39. That is, a change in your priorities, which is what verse 37 to 39 show. A change in our priorities will inevitably lead to a change in our relationships. I think the, the, the key word here is that word worthy. i try to kind of accentuate it a little bit. Which means kind of suitable or, or fit for purpose. That kind of thing. See, someone who belongs to King Jesus will have their priorities molded by the king through his word the bible that is they they understand think about matthew 10 they understand the time in which we live that is it's a time to proclaim jesus as lord that there's this appointed time coming where he will come fully and finally to judge and so jesus is sending this out into where the areas we live to make him known despite the persecution that might come See, the change in our relationships comes from a change in our priorities and what we know and what we do today. Let me think, uh, illustrate if I can. When, you know, when the young Kate Middleton went to St Andrew's University as a, a kind of young art history student, you know, her priorities, I guess, were to get a good degree, maybe play a bit of tennis and a bit of hockey. I think that's what she liked doing. And, you know, she wanted to have some good friends, have some fun, university life and all that kind of stuff. But her her priorities slightly changed in the first year, didn't they? She met someone, you know, some kind of guy, you know, and she began to prioritise time with with this kind of prince chap, who happened to be heir to the throne. Did that priority in her life change her relationships? Well, of course it would do. We we recognize that principle, don't we? If, if we change our priorities in life, the relationships in, in which we have will change to a degree. It's the same for us as the followers of Jesus Christ. As we change our values and priorities, as we read God's word, as we're molded by it, and as the Spirit works through that word, so too will our relationships change. So how do our priorities change when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ? i put three little things down there in the the following verses, 37, 38 and 39. Firstly, I think we see a change in our priority of our first love. Look at verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Our first love changes. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus... Your Saviour, perhaps without the blue cape, but we'll work with that. You know, uh, He is our first love. He's offered us new life with Him, an eternity with Him. And we're not worthy or suitable for that kingdom if our first love is anything else. But the point is, we must get this clear. You know, when you, when you pop upstairs, you, you don't say, Children, yeah, I don't, I don't really love you anymore, you know. <laughs> you know, sorry. You know, you don't ring up your mum and dad tonight and say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, don't love you. No, it's not the case at all. So one commentator put it, pointed out, he, there's no change to the fifth commandment here that is to honour your father and mother. Yeah. The point is that if you trust Jesus Christ as your king, if he's your first love, uh, the Christian not only wants to uphold that fifth commandment, but, but they now want to do the first four as well. That is to you know have no other gods before you, to have no idols, to, to not take laws in vain, keep that Sabbath holy. You know, Christians are not, we're not to stop loving our children, okay? We got that one clear? I hope so. Just for when we go back and see them in a moment. You know, we're, we're not to stop loving our mum and dad and honouring them. But the first love of a Christian is Jesus. To follow him, to trust him, to listen to his word and obey him. But the amazing thing is that when you do that, and when you dare to explore the word of God, you actually become a better dad, a better husband, a better friend. Because God's wisdom in here is is for you, and for your benefit, and for you and for his glory. But as people prioritise Jesus, remember, if Jesus is your first love, verse 34 still stands, there will be sword division. So a change in priorities will be seen in our first love. Secondly, our our first loyalty there. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now we all know that the cross at the time was the, the most barbaric torture that the Romans could kind of muster up. They came up with some Better ones as time it better in their mind uh, in time, but at the time it was the worst. So should we take up, you know, kind of that kind of similar act of barbarity in our lives today? You know, other religions would do it. They stick a vest on with some explosives and and that kind of thing. No. The point is, we should die to self, which is we should take up what the cross was all about. For that is what Jesus went to the cross for. God hates it when we put ourselves first, when we are loyal to ourselves above him, when our first love is us and not Jesus. So the Christian is to take up his cross, no longer living for themselves, but living for him, for his glory. And we can understand why that first loyalty brings friction, can't we? I mean, you can look back, just, just selfishly on ourselves, look back over the last half century, and you can see how our culture has become more and more obsessed and more kind of focused on the, the kind of individual pleasures and individual gain of material possessions and so on. We're obsessed with putting ourselves first. I, one, of my, one of my friends, who you all know, um, pointed me in the direction of an app On my iphone the other day it's called uncrate i don't know why it's called that but on this app there there are the most ridiculous items which you can purchase if you have ridiculous amounts of money that is you know you could get you know a corkscrew which is 24 karat gold with diamond encrusted handle you know there's all sorts of weird and wonderful thing for the person who has way too much money but i guess why i tell you that is is simply that there is so much out there. It kind of typifies what our culture is about. An obsession for self. Well, Christians are to die to self and to live for Christ. But note a loyalty change brings friction. Verse 34, so applies. The last change of priority is our first longing. Look at verse 39 if you can. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will lose For my sake, we'll find it. Now, this this verse doesn't really make much sense unless you look at the end of it and see it is for my sake, Jesus says. See, there are many people who will say, you know, I've, I've found what I've been looking for in my life. A friend of mine said, I found kiteboarding. It's brilliant. It's my life. Everything is sorted now. I can nearly kill myself on a little bit of, you know, kind of plastic with a kite uh, in the wind you know you know people do that they, they find the job that they've been longing for and they say, i found my life everything's sorted now this is what i've been looking for for me it may be a motorbike but it's never going to happen so that's okay but the glimmers of the glories of god that people experience in the job and the kiteboarding whatever it may be they're, they're all go they're all vanished weren't they you see if i find if you find meaning direction and purpose in life without jesus you're going to lose it One day it will go. Why? Because Jesus is the king of God's eternal kingdom and one day he will judge and he will judge your life and see if it has any meaning, direction and purpose with reference to him. And if our lives find their direction and longing in Jesus and his purposes, well, there we find our eternal lives. There we find true life. Now I could give countless examples of brave men and women who have lived with priorities defined by Christ. You know what my shelves are like. They're full of these great biographies of men, and you borrow those. But I could give you countless examples, but I wanted to get a bit more personal here, if I could. What priorities do you live by? What priorities do you project to those around you, family members, friends, loved ones, even your family? Think about to your children, if you have children, for just for a moment. Do you move house for the extra room, for the bigger garden, for the school place, without a thought to their spiritual growth, to the church that they're part of? What are you teaching them about yourself and your consumerist attitude? What are you teaching at that point? To your friends, do you look for ease and comfort in your relationships? Rather than making Jesus known and facing the consequences of what they might say. To your families, maybe. Do you avoid controversy at all costs? So you keep quiet about your kind of gospel, biblical priorities. After all, it's not very British, is it, to shout it from the rooftops. Do you see what you might be saying to your children, to your family, to your friends, to your loved one? What you're probably projecting. Maybe you don't want to, but you are. If, you, if, you, if you're living like that and you're thinking like that, you're kind of saying compromise, half-heartedness. Please do note that these verses are not for the super-Christian. Do you know that? The amount of times that Jesus throws in the word anyone and whoever kind of means it's, it's for all of us, isn't it? Therefore, do you see what Jesus is saying? The Christian who does not prioritise Jesus and his work above all other things is not worthy. Is not worthy. A a personal note here, I guess. You know, I look around church and think, we've been doing this for a few years, and I guess some of us are quite tired being a small church you know, in London is fairly exhausting at times. We may need a rest over the summer, and I hope we get a good rest. Because I guess there will be times ahead which may be even more painful. As people move on, if you need to go to new places, uh, you know, move away for jobs, whatever it may be what does a Christian do? How does a Christian react in those kinds of things? Well, the Christian looks to their shoulder at the cross that they have to bear, metaphorically, of course, and he says, no, I die to self, and I live for Christ, to make him known. See, the Christian, I wonder how you identify yourself. Do you see yourself as the hedge funder, the banker, whatever it may be, you know, the doctor, the lawyer, the bus driver? not sure, but you know, know, how do you see yourself? A Christian is a Christian who happens to be the banker, the civil servant, that's who you are. We are labourers in the harvest field for God, with Christ as our first loyalty, longing and love. A change in relationships because of a change of priorities. But finally, in the last couple of minutes, a change in the reward. See, if you line up with the, pro- the, the public proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the point of the... I'm not going to spend too much time on it. We, we're running out of time. But verse 41, kind of receiving the prophet. What you're saying is, I stand with you. The one who's proclaiming Christ. I'm with you. I'm lining up with you. Essentially saying. Likewise with the cup of cold water in verse 42. You're saying... I provide for them. I'm with them. I'm right beside them. You're saying, I stand with them. And I belong with them. And what you're doing by saying that, you're saying, I'm lining up with Jesus. I'm lining up with Jesus' people. And as such, you are lining up with those who will receive a reward, it says, right at the end of verse 42. That is, you won't lose it if you line yourself up, if you stand with these people, if you stand with Jesus, those who acknowledge the King. I, I, make it practical just for a second. Who do you line up with most at work? You know, you may have a, a, a you know, just to use an example, you may have a cleaner, let's say. It goes to a, a different church, way over in the east end of London or something like that, and it's a little bit different and you're not. But who do you line up with most See, you are more like that cleaner in the office who goes to that different church over in the East End than you are the agnostic boss who you long to impress. Because that cleaner acknowledges Jesus as Lord. We will be rewarded if we line up, stand with, receive Jesus' people because in so doing we're receiving Jesus himself. And we're to stand with the crazy misfits who dare to proclaim Christ. Because as we do so, we stand with, receive and line ourselves up with Christ. And Jesus shows us in this passage, I guess, just to close. The reality of standing with him. And with his people. He speaks... Not with arrogance, but with the ultimate authority that he has demonstrated and taught with. An authority that changes the world. One person at a time. There's a huge cost to lining up with Jesus. And I think as we get to the end of Matthew 10, I don't think I've pulled you know, the wool over your eyes. I don't think I've skipped over stuff to kind of say, you know, oh, this, is, this won't be so bad. no. This could be quite difficult at times. Change is painful. But there will be reward. There will be reward as this chapter finishes. That is infinitely greater. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, please forgive us when we have shirked from uh, proclaiming your gospel. Heavenly Father, we do uh, worry so often about uh, the change that needs to occur in our own lives uh, for being your disciple. Lord, we've read these passages, we've looked at them and we we now see uh, with hopefully greater clarity the cost that is required of of following you, of proclaiming your good news. Uh, we recognise what may lay ahead for each one of us, maybe with family, maybe with friends, maybe with work colleagues, and yet help us to do it in the light of what is to come with those wonderfully assuring words that we will certainly not lose our reward. Help us to line up with you and with your people, to stand with you, to proclaim you for your glory prayer. Amen.